0: Welcome, one and all, to New Mexico in Focus, the podcast. This is Monday, March 14th, 2022. I am your host, Kevin McDonald, executive producer here at New Mexico PBS. And we got another jam packed episode for you here today. We so appreciate you subscribing and listening in. And we hope you uh, enjoy the ability to take this with you to the gym or uh, listen on a work break or on a walk. Uh, And it's also a great way for us to bring you all the content we just don't have time for in our show, which, by the way, airs Friday nights at 7 on New Mexico PBS, and you can stream at any time on the PBS app. We're going to start with our line opinion panel, our most recent line opinion panel, which includes Ed Perea, an attorney and a legal and public safety expert. We've got public health expert Michael Byrd back with us. Always love his perspectives. And Julianne Grimm, editor and publisher of the Santa Fe Reporter. And we're going to kick things off with uh, something straight out of the headlines, editorial pages of the Albuquerque Journal, where Bernalillo County District Attorney Raul Torres recently uh, expressed his concerns about the underutilization of a Criminal diversion project. Basically, the deal here is that for minor offenses, nonviolent offenses, uh, where it seems appropriate to all parties involved, people can plead guilty and then uh, not go to jail but take advantage of other resources like mental health or substance abuse resources. And as long as they complete that therapy, that training. Uh, then they uh, do not end up in jail or even in the court system at all. But that first part of that is the kicker. Uh, They have to plead guilty because if they don't do what they're supposed to, then they immediately go to jail. But it, uh, as you will hear our line panelists talk about, also skirts uh, some of the basic tenets of due process. And so is that part of the reason it's being underutilized? We know that this is a program used in Santa Fe for a while as well. So Julianne Grimm of The Santa Fe Reporter, they've done some great reporting on this, some great insights there. So let's jump right into it. Here's host Gene Grant and The Line. Welcome
1: this week to our three Line Opinion panelists. Hello to Michael Byrd, former president of the American Public Health Association. IT'S GOOD TO SEE ATTORNEY AND LEGAL AND PUBLIC SAFETY ANALYST ED Perez BACK WITH US AND WE'RE VERY HAPPY TO HAVE JULIANNE GRIMM, EDITOR OF THE SANTA FE REPORTER BACK WITH US TOO. THANK YOU ALL FOR, your, for JOINING US AT THIS VIRTUAL ROUNDTABLE THIS WEEK. THIS CRIMINAL DIVERSION PROGRAM HAS BEEN ON THE BOOKS FOR A FEW YEARS NOW, BUT RECENTLY Bernalillo COUNTY DISTRICT ATTORNEY Raúl TORRES TOLD THE ALBUQUERQUE JOURNAL EDITORIAL BOARD PUBLIC DEFENDERS AREN'T TAKING ADVANTAGE OF IT AS OFTEN AS THEY SHOULD. Julianne, this program started in Santa Fe about seven years ago, and your paper, Santa Fe Reporter, recently put out a deep dive on how it started and why participants are dwindling. Can you first explain how the problem, you know, worked early on in Santa Fe and exactly how things started to go wrong?
2: Well... I'm not sure that we have a complete picture Mm -hmm. on why things went the way they did, Mm -hmm. but I can tell you that this program was highly touted when it started off, and Mm -hmm. you often hear the drumbeat, and I don't think there's a lot of disagreement that it's important for people who are suffering from addiction and mental health problems to see treatment rather than incarceration, to see opportunities for rehabilitation Mm -hmm. versus punishment. Um, And that where I really think the rubber hits the road is that the prosecutors, the police department and the public defenders aren't always all moving in the same direction at once. And so the situation in Santa Fe was that there was a very dedicated police captain who worked on the program and developing and training and making sure the network with the local district attorneys was very strong. Mm-hmm. And when that person retired and left the department, there really wasn't a strong advocate to pick up the torch and carry it. Mm-hmm. So that's the explanation that Ted Alcorn got when he did a report uh, for our newspaper a few months back on mm-hmm. this. and. REALLY WE GOT TURNED ON TO THIS STORY BECAUSE TED WAS WRITING FOR THE WASHINGTON POST ABOUT JUDGE JASON Lindyard AND HIS mm-hmm. WORK IN THE FIRST DISTRICT TO EMPLOY DRUG COURT AS A WAY TO HELP THIS SAME GROUP OF PEOPLE FROM BEING CAUGHT IN THE INCARCERATION CRIMINALIZATION LOOP AND REALLY GET SOME HELP FOR THE, the ROOT CAUSES OF THEIR mm-hmm. ISSUES. Mm-hmm. Um, Then I think if you want to transition to what's happening in Albuquerque and what the criticism has been, Mm -hmm. um, you're seeing in Albuquerque a great increase in the number of people for whom these programs might be available. Mm -hmm. Um, You're seeing the prosecutors much more frequently offer this to the public defenders and their clients as a way of settling uh, criminal cases that have been raised. Mm -hmm. But what Raul Torres is complaining about is that not enough of the defendants are saying yes i want to be involved in this pre-prosecution diversion program yes i want treatment yes i want to do something different Mm -hmm. Um, and, and so one of the big problems that the defenders say is that initially and still in some types of cases to be involved in that program requires a guilty plea
0: right and everyone
2: knows that you don't want a guilty plea you don't want a record if you can avoid it right you don't want to be uh, you know, you just don't have to deal with that. So that's one of the, the big problems going on. And I think that mm-hmm. you know, you've got the head of the public defender's office, Bennett Bauer, saying these things take time. Mm-hmm. This is the step in the right direction that the prosecutors are offering this to this many people, mm-hmm. um, and has also said that Raúl Torres is politicizing this, and I ah. don't think that's directed. Raúl is running for a statewide office. He wants to be attorney general. Anything he does is going
1: to face that scrutiny interesting points there uh, Michael um, uh, would, you know public defenders like uh district attorney Torres says or who's to blame here you know the, you know where public defenders seem to be getting blamed here in some bizarre way is is this appropriate
3: well i I guess what comes what rises to and catches my attention is
1: mm-hmm.
3: why was the why was there a conversation with the editorial board, I mean what was the purpose of that what purpose was served by bringing it to the to the editorial board wouldn't it not have been better if you really want to address the issue to um, in fact have a conversation with with all all parties involved mm-hmm. uh, public defenders. Um, there clearly there's merit in this approach, uh, but I guess w- what my takeaway, and I'm certainly not involved in any of this, but my takeaway is that if if you really want to, uh, if you're really there to serve the public mm-hmm. and promote the common good for all people, citizens, all citizens, even those who've been accused of, you know, whatever criminal act, mm-hmm. is that and 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 if they're coming. And if it's not, a, they're non-violent um, right. charges. That's right. It would seem to me that the, the for a number of reasons, given what's going on in, in Albuquerque, that you would try and remedy it with the most effective, efficient, in an effective, efficient manner. And it seems like this, that's what it is, mm-hmm. this diversion program. Um, and, you know, it, it's like, who... who I guess the first question I'd ask everybody who's involved in this is who are you serving? Ah, who do you serve? Yeah, that's a good question and there. That's actually a very good you question. And, and are, you, are you in fact engaging in activity, conversation, activity that moves this forward? If we're committed to something as Santa Fe had been right. in that manner, it was effective. It did appear to address the issue. BUT um, YOU HAVE TO HAVE EVERYBODY ON THE SAME TEAM. Right. YOU HAVE TO HAVE PEOPLE COMMITTED TO SOMETHING BIGGER THAN THEMSELVES OR, or, or THEIR DEPARTMENT OR THEIR PARTICULAR PROGRAM. Mm-hmm. AND um, UNTIL YOU HAVE THAT KIND OF A CONVERSATION, I DON'T THINK IT'S GOING gonna, it's gonna TO CHANGE. GOOD POINTS THERE. AND I WANT TO GO BACK TO SOMETHING JULIANNE MENTIONED
1: ABOUT THE, uh, YOU KNOW, HAVING TO ADMIT GUILT <laughs> IN ORDER to, TO PARTICIPATE IN THE, in the PROGRAM. Uh, what's your opinion of that? Is that just a stopper right there? What's going on with that?
4: And, and it can it can be. And we have to look at the mission of both sides. The, the mission of the prosecutors is to get convictions. That's how, that's how DAs and prosecutors are mentioned, are measured across the state. On the on the other hand, the defense attorney, it's with a little more focus. And I'm not saying this doesn't isn't the case with the prosecution, mm-hmm. but the focus a little more with public with defenders are. CONSTITUTIONAL RIGHTS ARE DO THEY HAVE CONSTITUTIONAL DUE PROCESS right. ARE THEIR CONSTITUTIONAL RIGHTS INSURED RIGHT AND THAT SO THOSE ARE THE BIG ARGUMENTS SO I CAN UNDERSTAND WHY THE PROSECUTOR WOULD SAY HEY AS A CONDITION OF THIS DIVERSION PROGRAM WHY DON'T YOU ADMIT GUILT SO THEY CHECK OFF THAT THAT PROSECUTION THAT THAT, that uh, YOU KNOW ON THEIR OTHER on LIST OF, um, of CASES and so I can see there. But where and, and, and let me ask you problem.
1: this. Let me ask you this. If someone gets kicked out of the program, is there not a danger that that admission of guilt CAN come back to literally haunt them?
4: And, and Gene, you're, you're you're absolutely right. You're, you're absolutely right. And, you know, by admitting guilt up front, it avoids um, the complete due process mm-hmm. from taking place mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. further examine other issues associated with the with the charge and the, and the crime itself. And so. Uh, I CAN SEE THE DEFENSE ATTORNEYS ARE SLOW TO MOVE IN THAT DIRECTION. I THINK ULTIMATELY, YOU KNOW, THIS IS CLEARLY A PUBLIC SAFETY ISSUE, Mm -hmm. Um, AND THE COST OF INCARCERATION, THE END GAME, UNFORTUNATELY, IN SOME CASES, IS INCARCERATION. WHEN WE INCARCERATE, WE FAIL AS A SOCIETY. THERE ARE COMPONENTS BEFORE THAT, PREVENTION, INTERVENTION, AND TREATMENT. AND IF WE'RE SUCCESSFUL WITH PREVENTION, INTERVENTION, OR TREATMENT, WE AVOID THE INCARCERATION PIECE. Some studies out there show that incarceration will cost taxpayers $100,000 or more a year. Mm-hmm. So if we can avoid that step through treatment, why not? And I think so. This is a, 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 a diversion programs have been around for some time, and it's just important that both the defense side and the prosecution side continue to work together for the best interest of, of the community and public safety. Mm-hmm.
1: Julianne, I got to ask, you know, the reporting in your paper was really interesting. Early on, people who were diverted into the program racked up fewer arrests in the following uh, six months compared to a control group which is pretty interesting and it also ed mentions money it also saved about fifteen hundred dollars per client per year relative to their normal burden on you know the justice system and the health care it seems like a no-brainer to use this program as much as possible it, so what you know it has the support of the mayor of mayor weber is, is there something on the brink here that to make this sort of bust out and BE more, MUCH MORE I THINK effective.
2: THE FOCUS OF THE WEBER ADMINISTRATION REALLY SHIFTED WITH THE LAUNCH OF THE um, ALTERNATIVE POLICING UNIT AND yeah. I MIGHT NOT HAVE THAT name EXACTLY CORRECT. THE CONCEPT IS SENDING uh, SOCIAL SERVICE PROVIDERS MEDICAL ATTENTION WHEN THERE ARE CALLS FOR SERVICE FROM FOLKS WHO MAY NOT REALLY NEED A COP. Um, AND SO OF COURSE THIS DECREASES THE INTERACTION BETWEEN um, PEOPLE WHO MAYBE ARE JUST uh, having behavioral health issues or having, you know, they're on on something that's making them act out of uh you know, out of the law, but they don't really need need a police officer. I'm not sure I'm articulating that super well, but this alternative unit is the, the thing that the Weber administration has focused on more. And there we really haven't heard a lot from them. There was really no response to the story that we did that said, wow. hey, we're not using our diversion program. What's up with that? Uh we really didn't get a lot of traction on that. I'm really glad that we have an opportunity to talk about it on here. I just want to circle back to one idea about the guilty plea, and that's like back to the foundation of the justice system, Mm -hmm. which is that there are definitely people who are not guilty of the crimes they are accused of, but who do need substance and behavioral health services. And so we're really cutting them out. If we're, you know, forcing the guilty plea, we're putting them in a situation that's not going to lead to them participating willingly.
1: That's an excellent last note. Thank you for that. Thank you for that discussion as well. We'll be back with more analysis from the line in less than 15 minutes, talking about a new bill meant to address child abuse and neglect and why it's causing some concern among child welfare advocates.
0: All right, let's stay with the line now and talk about a bill that is soon to become law. Uh, The governor signed it into effect last week. Uh, But that was after we taped our discussion, so you may hear some ifs in there that are now wins, but this is a a program designed to deal with child neglect and abuse cases here in New Mexico that really kind of breezed through the legislative session this year, but is now uh, something that a lot of folks are showing concern over, especially in uh, circles around child well-being, advocates Uh, and uh, public defenders and lawyers. Uh, And so it's a very complicated issue. It's a new approach that the state obviously is going to be taking, but a lot of questions about how we hold the program accountable and how it will make a difference for kids in need here in New Mexico. And that's the important part, need to take care of these kids. Is this going to be the best way to do that? Is it worth a shot? Love to know what you think about it after listening to the conversation. You can drop us a line on any of our social media channels, whether that's YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, just search for New Mexico and focus and drop us a line there. You can also leave us a message here on the podcast. Any way you wanna do that is great with us, but here let's jump right back to the line opinion panel.
1: Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham is considering a bill passed through the legislature last month that would change the way the state addresses child abuse and neglect cases. ACCORDING TO REPORTING FROM SEARCHLIGHT NEW MEXICO, THE BILL WOULD CREATE AN OFFICE, THE OFFICE OF FAMILY REPRESENTATION AND ADVOCACY THAT WOULD BE A CENTRALIZED AGENCY WITH FIVE LOCATIONS AROUND THE STATE, EACH STAFF WITH ATTORNEYS, SOCIAL WORKERS AND OTHER STAFF TO HANDLE THESE CASES. NOW, THE CONTROVERSY IS ROOTED IN A BELIEF FROM SOME CHILD ADVOCACY at- ATTORNEYS WHO SAY THIS WILL COST A LOT OF MONEY WITHOUT RESOLVING THE CORE PROBLEMS IN OUR STATE'S APPROACH TO CHILD WELFARE specifically the quality of representation for children now with that said is this bill Michael Byrd a step in the right direction or are we kind of putting the cart before the horse here
3: uh, I, well I guess this is for New Mexico welcome to New Mexico this is one of those <laughs> longstanding uh, issues that, that I can that goes back to uh, uh, unfortunately far too long mm-hmm. uh, and of course the uh, um the uh, the uh, families and children that that end up in in this circumstances are the ones who bear the bear the burden um so I you know I mean it 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 again for me it's it seems like it's a a, a structural sort of issue in in that we WE HAVE A HOST OF ISSUES THAT HAVE ALWAYS CHALLENGED NEW MEXICO, CHILD POVERTY, POVERTY IN GENERAL, Um, uh, FAMILIES THAT um, HAVE BEEN IMPACTED BY SUBSTANCE ABUSE AND and A HOST OF OTHER ISSUES THAT CREATE AN ENVIRONMENT THAT IN FACT um, CAN uh, UNFORTUNATELY um, PUT CHILDREN, FAMILIES AND CHILDREN AT RISK. Mm -hmm. AND um, THERE HAVE BEEN, IT SEEMS TO ME, A NUMBER OF ITERATIONS ON on SOLUTIONS To addressing this issue, um, I guess the the takeaway I have is that you you have uh, advocates who've been um, engaged in this uh, area of activity for quite some time, and and if in fact um, you know if there's a significant number of them or some of them are raising issues and concerns, um, I guess I'd, I'd have to just kind of wonder, well, you know. Was there not an opportunity to engage people in a conversation right. and have some um, discourse on, on, on in effect, is this the best way to address this issue? Right. Um, and if that conversation took place, people were engaged, all those um, people with a vested interest in this and history in it were engaged, and and, you know, this was what the, was proposed, well, then I can, then, then maybe there's something worth pursuing. Mm-hmm. If not, then it would seem to me a conversation, if you're going to address an issue this of uh, this critical and of, of this significance on the state, that there needs to really be greater um, conversations. And I'm not in government, so, you know, somebody can say, well, he doesn't know what he's sure. talking about. But, sure. but if there's a problem, you sit down and you, and you pull people together and you try and Drop the best solution to addressing it. Mm-hmm.
1: Julianne, supporters of the bill, uh, Albuquerque nonprofit Pegasus Legal Services for Children, for example, says this program will help shift the mentality away from a, a punitive approach. You know, kids are taken from their parents at the drop to much more of a pre- preventative mindset, meaning working to solve problems before cases are even filed. I, is that how we should be approaching these situations? I mean, it seems logical.
2: I mean, I, I think that the like a lot of the approaches to these problems the simple theory behind them is not the problem the problem is in the implementation gotcha and so you've got this agency that's been created and mind you this moved through the legislative process in a rather unremarkable way you had unanimous approval on the house floor not a single legislator voted against it in the house and in the senate only two people voted Mm -hmm. against it Mm -hmm. So that's an interesting note, I think. But mm-hmm. really what, you're, what you've what you got here is a, a system that was envisioned to perform similarly to the law office of the public defender, to be an independent agency full of lawyers who would advocate for children and advocate for parents and serve as their attorneys in court. Mm-hmm. But what happened is this went through the process is that it became another bureaucratic adjunct under the executive
1: branch. Right.
2: AND SO I THINK THAT'S SORT OF LEVEL ONE OF WHAT MIGHT BE A PROBLEM. GO AHEAD
1: AND EXPLAIN THAT JUST A LITTLE BIT MORE. AND THAT'S a, the, THE NUT OF THIS, ISN'T IT? THERE'S A LOT OF, there's a lot, of, YOU KNOW, HOW THIS IS BEING IMPLEMENTED. Go EXPAND ON THAT A LITTLE BIT. THE DIFFERENCE BETWEEN HOW IT SHOULD HAVE COME LEGISLATIVELY AND ACCORDING TO SOME PEOPLE AND VERSUS HOW IT ACTUALLY DID HAPPEN.
2: WELL, JUST THAT THE LAW OFFICE OF THE PUBLIC DEFENDER IS AN INDEPENDENT AGENCY. THE HEAD OF THAT OFFICE IS not really beholden to uh does not attend cabinet meetings is not part of the political right. agenda. Mm-hmm. Um also not part of the judiciary, not under the um, you know, the judge is not the boss of the public defender. Mm-hmm. Um in this case you're really creating a state agency. Um the governor is the boss. Right. And you're also there's another problem with lawyers, you know, the law office of the public defender can't handle all the necessary child abuse and neglect cases with specialty because there aren't enough lawyers. Mm -hmm. And I love what a opinion letter writer in the Albuquerque Journal said about this, which was creating this office will not magically create new, different and better attorneys. AND IN huh. NEW MEXICO, WE HAVE PROBLEMS WITH ATTORNEYS NOT WANTING TO SERVE IN PUBLIC OFFICES, right. NOT QUALIFIED EXPERIENCED ATTORNEYS, AND right. NOT IN RURAL AREAS, OF WHICH WE HAVE MANY.
1: Mm-hmm. YOU KNOW, ED, uh, THE GOVERNOR JUST APPROVED SOME PAY RAISES FOR A BIG CHUNK OF PUBLIC EMPLOYEES. THAT'S FOR SURE TO KIND OF ADDRESS THIS. Um, BUT IT'S CLEARLY, YOU KNOW, Julia IS NOT SAYING IT'S JUST ABOUT MONEY, CERTAINLY, BUT IT IS ABOUT MONEY IN, in MANY WAYS, YOU KNOW WHAT I MEAN? SO I, I HAVE TO SAY AGAIN, the plan seems like this is what folks have been calling for for about twenty years. When you really think about it, to have a separate unit here and really get closer to the problem on the ground here, I'm interested in your your sense on that angle.
4: You know, in my in my private practice, I work with a lot of GALS and I deal with cases involving abuse and neglected neglected children from from time to time. And I look at this I look at this oversight agency. And on the surface, it sounds great. We all want greater oversight. We all want a better system. Mm-hmm. But what we're throwing into this is another bureaucracy. Was there a way to accomplish the same mission, the same goals, the same objectives by improving the current system right. versus creating funding for a, for a whole new agency? Will it work? Well, it's you know that's difficult to say. There are proponents, but there are opponents. And some of the opponents that, that I SPOKEN TO ARE A LITTLE BIT CONCERNED THAT THEY DIDN'T HAVE THE LEVEL OF INPUT. THEY REALLY WEREN'T ABLE TO CONVEY TO THE COMMITTEE WHO IS REVIEWING THIS BILL OF, of POTENTIAL uh, UNINTENDED CONSEQUENCES THAT MIGHT IMPACT THEIR ULTIMATE MISSION. I MEAN, THERE'S some CONFLICT OF INTEREST mm-hmm. ISSUES AND SOME OTHER THINGS THAT MIGHT TAKE PLACE. SO uh, IT'S THE, the BILL IS IN PLACE. IT'S LAW. IT'S BEEN SIGNED. So AT THIS POINT, IT'S A WAIT AND SEE and And maybe there's a way to tweak it down the road to ensure that we are accomplishing what the bill is intended to do
1: Ed I, I wonder your opinion also I got one for Michael as well, but your opinion about the lawyer turnover that uh, Julianne mentioned, uh, does this help solve that in your view, having you know these field offices and, and all that kind of a thing
4: if if convenience is why uh, IS a REASON WHY ATTORNEYS PURSUE A POSITION AT ANY GIVEN PLACE, THEN CONVENIENCE, YOU KNOW, MIGHT COME INTO PLAY. Yeah. That, THAT LEVEL OF, of the, THE NUMBER OF ATTORNEYS that, THAT SEEK POSITIONS FOR CONVENIENCE, WELL, YOU KNOW, THAT'S, that's HARD TO SAY. Mm-hmm. Uh, ULTIMATELY, THIS TYPE of, uh, of, OF LAWYERING, IF YOU WILL, IS VERY DIFFICULT. Yep. It's, IT'S HIGHLY EMOTIONAL. IT'S, it's, a, it's a VERY DIFFICULT uh, FIELD. In which to in which to operate and, and i would venture to say that you know most of the turnover is a result of, of, of the high pressure and maybe low pay mm-hmm. uh you know sometimes mm-hmm. You know, pay may be a motivator, and some people may say, "Okay, I'm willing to put up with what I have to in order to be an effective attorney in these types of cases mm-hmm. if I make them." You know, so and then that too remains to be seen.
1: That's a good point. Hey, Mike, I just got 20 can seconds here, uh, if I can. Oh, go ahead, Julianne. My fault. I see you there.
2: I was just going to say, when you framed the question earlier and you talked about prevention sure. versus punishment, I think you left out the word that really gets used a lot, which is unification, mm. and um, that's the push that you see in New Mexico that I think is also not without flaw. AS A JOURNALIST, I'VE COVERED LOTS OF CASES WHERE REUNIFICATION ALLOWED PARENTS AN OPPORTUNITY TO HURT THEIR CHILDREN AGAIN. AND SO I THINK SORT OF PAINTING THAT BROAD BRUSH THAT UNIFICATION IS THE SAME THING AS PREVENTION IS A LITTLE DANGEROUS ALSO. JUST WANTED TO RAISE THAT.
1: GOOD POINT THERE. MIKE, IF YOU HAVE A LAST WORD ON THAT, WE'LL TAKE IT. MY FAULT THERE. I DIDN'T MEAN TO SKIP OVER YOU. Uh, HEY, BY THE WAY, PUBLIC DEFENDERS ARE NOT GETTING ANY MONEY (laughs) THIS TIME AROUND. SHOULD THEY HAVE GOTTEN SOME? IS THIS PART OF THE PROBLEM HERE?
3: yeah I, I would think so. Mm-hmm. You know The other thing is I just very quickly, I think that how, how are we evaluating? Is there a mechanism for evaluating this 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 model, this approach so that we in fact know is, is, is it improving things? Mm-hmm. Are things better or worse? or you know how does it stand And without some sort of evaluation in there, um, you really don't know. Yeah
1: That's a good point there. Thanks again for your thoughts on that issue. We'll return to the line in one final time in less than 15 minutes. Talk about the situation in Ukraine, how it's affecting gas prices across the country, and a new proposal from the governor to help lower those costs on consumers.
0: This week is Sunshine Week all across the country, something that was started several years ago, really to celebrate open government, transparency, the ability for people to see How the business of government is done. And we thought that was a perfect opportunity to check in with the Foundation for Open Government, who focuses on these issues here in New Mexico. They do a lot of great work on transparency, open records requests, known as IPRA, all sorts of things. And of course, we're also coming off the recent legislative session, which had a lot of twists and turns, starting with. The fact that it was still a hybrid, and so people could tune in to a lot of the hearings and discussions and debates over the internet. We know not everybody has that connectivity, and it also means you don't have necessarily that face-to-face access you have if you're able to go to the roundhouse, but not everybody's able to make that trip either, so there's good and bad around all of it. Also going to dive into topics around the use of dummy bills during the legislative session, Omnibus bills where a bunch get crushed together, maybe an amendment that a lot of people don't have the time to fully digest and have good, thoughtful comments on. And uh, so there's things to be celebrated, but there are also things that uh, a lot of folks, including Fogg, would like to see changed. So we were able to sit down our correspondent, Gwyneth Dolan, with Shannon Kunkel, who is the executive director of the Foundation for Open Government. And here is their conversation.
5: Shannon Kunkel, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me, Gwyneth. In honor of Sunshine Week, which is coming up, we are checking in with you on the state of transparency in New Mexico. First, we've just finished the 30-day legislative session, hopefully the last that we'll have to deal with these pandemic-related restrictions. What was good about this last session in terms of access for the public?
6: Well, even before the session began, Fogg sent a letter to legislative leadership um, and we asked for certain uh, measures to be put in place for transparency purposes. Um, one of those was ensuring that the webcast uh, was up and running, and that if at any point it went down that they would halt proceedings until they could clear up the technical issues. Um, So for the public, what was really great about having access via webcast and Zoom is that, you know, your typical mom down in Silver City was able to hop on Zoom, make a comment about the teacher salary issue, for example, without having to make the trip up to Santa Fe.
5: So do you think that's something that should continue after the pandemic is over?
6: You know, I really do. I think it's ideal for folks to be able to tune in remotely, especially, I mean, we're the fifth largest state in the country geographically. So it makes a lot of sense to have that remote option. That said, you know, it is obviously ideal for everyone to be up in the building and to have those face-to-face interactions with lawmakers. What was not so good about transparency? You know, one thing, for example, with the Zoom that we had requested was that lawmakers be on camera uh, during the hearings, and that was not always the case. So it was hard to know who was really tuned in and paying attention uh, to the committee hearings. Um, Another thing that was difficult uh, was that there was one committee, uh, the Senate Committees Committee, um, which determines the germaneness of bills in a 30-day session. Essentially, They they get to decide whether the bill gets heard or not. Exactly, so in a 30 day budget session, only things that are on the governor's call are uh, ruled to be heard other than budget matters. Um, And so basically this, this committee decided whether bills moved forward or they died that day. Uh, AND THOSE PROCEEDINGS WERE NOT WEBCAST. Uh, THEY WERE ALLOWING CITIZENS TO SIT IN THE ROOM TO OBSERVE THE PROCEEDINGS, BUT IT WOULD HAVE BEEN SO MUCH BETTER FOR THE PUBLIC TO HAVE BEEN ABLE TO WATCH THOSE. um, AND THE HOUSE uh, HAS A SIMILAR COMMITTEE, THE HOUSE RULES OF ORDER AND BUSINESS COMMITTEE, AND THEY WERE WEBCASTING. SO IT'S A LITTLE BIT DISJOINTED IN THAT WAY. YEAH.
5: ONE OF THE THINGS WE'VE COMPLAINED ABOUT AS JOURNALISTS OVER THE YEARS IS DUMMY BILLS. Um are yeah. sort of blank pieces of paper that are submitted early in the session as a bill. There's nothing in it, but they can pull it out at the last minute, write something up and send it through. Does that bug you guys?
6: It does. Um, you know, I think they're intended to be used in cases of emergencies, right? If you know we were to have some kind of kind of catastrophic event, like like a COVID sort of situation, crop up in the middle of the legislature, they could pull one of these bills together and address a problem. Unfortunately, what tends to happen is bills that were previously tabled then get resurrected at the eleventh hour using these dummy bills and it can at times skirt the committee process, which is really when the public has a chance to weigh in and make comments. So we like for bills to make their way to the governor's desk in the traditional manner where it's assigned committees, the public is able to speak out and then it moves uh, to the floor.
5: Shannon, let me also ask you about these omnibus bills that happen during uh, a budget session, for example. What's the problem with those?
6: Well, you know, especially in a short session, right at the end, um, we had folks who were calling fog, even asking, saying, hey, do you know what's in this bill? And it was really hard to keep track of. Even journalists who are veteran reporters at the roundhouse were confused at the last minute. What's in, what's out? um, When all of these bills were rolled together and
5: amended at the last minute. Yeah, I mean that you can be hundreds and hundreds of pages, and it. it's like an archaeological dig, trying to figure out: did that thing end up in this bill, or did they get rid of it?
6: Exactly, and when you're having these amendments to amendments, um, and they're happening on the floor, the public doesn't have the opportunity to comment or weigh in on any particular provision. And an amendment can completely change the nature of the bill. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, it can change how you know how the legislation works entirely.
5: You know the legislature also met late last year to finalize redistricting plans that had been forwarded to them by the first ever citizens redistricting committee uh, and that committee's work was largely praised for its accessibility and openness to the public what about the process when it got to the legislature was that as good yeah No,
6: it was not as good uh, with the legislature. You know, the the redistricting committee was terrific in that they held hybrid meetings around the state uh, where you could participate via Zoom, you could actually meet with the folks on the committee. And that was terrific. Uh, Once we got to the legislature, we saw a lot of closed door sessions um, where they were discussing the maps. And Fogg actually sent a letter Uh, to lawmakers urging them to conduct their work in
5: public. Uh, Unfortunately, that didn't happen to a large degree. We have 10 years before they take up redistricting again, uh, which is a long time, but also allows us to think about how we might want to do it better. Do you have any recommendations for how that should change next time? YOU KNOW, IN THE 30-DAY SESSION,
6: um, A CONSTITUTIONAL AMENDMENT WAS PROPOSED TO CREATE AN INDEPENDENT REDISTRICTING COMMISSION uh, WHICH WOULD HAVE THE AUTHORITY TO ESSENTIALLY MAKE THE MAPS AND SKIRT THE LEGISLATURE ALTOGETHER. Uh, WE DO THINK THAT FOR TRANSPARENCY PURPOSES THAT MIGHT BE THE BETTER ROUTE SO LONG AS THAT COMMITTEE OPERATED IN A SIMILAR, THAT COMMISSION I APOLOGIZE, OPERATED IN A SIMILAR MANNER TO THE COMMITTEE WHERE IT WAS RECEIVING PUBLIC INPUT AND KEEPING THE PROCESS IN THE LIGHT.
5: AND THEN WHATEVER THEY DECIDE THAT'S IT THE LEGISLATURE DOESN'T GET TO TAKE IT BACK AND MESS WITH IT.
6: EXACTLY AND YOU KNOW IT REALLY DOES MAKE SENSE THAT WAY.
5: SO AT LEAST TWICE IN RECENT YEARS Uh, Lobbyists have accused state lawmakers of sexual harassment Uh, and in both cases there has arisen this tension between privacy uh, and and trying to protect some element of the private lives of these accusers with a, a transparent process that holds politicians accountable for their actions. How can we balance privacy and transparency when it comes to things like this?
6: You know, that that is uh, basically what Fog deals with all the time is this right to privacy versus the public's right to know. And in most cases, the public's right to know really does trump individual privacy, particularly elected officials who have chosen to waive some of those rights by running for office. Um, You know, we would like to see any investigation be as public and transparent as possible. I think it's important for the public to be able to hold accountable officials for their behavior while they're serving us in office.
5: And one of the quirks of this process right now is that the legislature is in charge of policing itself. Um, Why do these things not go to the new and by many accounts pretty well-functioning Ethics Commission? I
6: think ideally they should. I think that that's something that um, the Ethics Commission you KNOW WE COULD HAVE LEGISLATION PASSED THAT WOULD REFER THESE TYPES OF COMPLAINTS TO THE INDEPENDENT ETHICS COMMISSION WHICH YOU KNOW FOG FOUGHT PRETTY HARD TO ENSURE THAT THEIR PROCESS AT uh, THE STATE ETHICS COMMISSION IS ONE THAT'S VERY TRANSPARENT AND THAT WAS SOMETHING FOG WORKED HARD TO ENSURE.
5: YEAH. Mm-hmm. On the local level, you know, city councils, county commissions, they've had a lot of time to adapt to pandemic restrictions, um, keeping their meetings open by going online in many of the same ways that the, the legislature did. Technology helps. But what about people who are trying to get information from government agencies through our state FOIA process? Um, which is called IPRA here. How well are we doing right now on making sure that citizens have access to the records of their own government?
6: Gwyneth has been a real problem throughout the pandemic. And um, we at FOG operate a hotline where citizens, journalists and others can call if they're having problems Um, RECEIVING RECORDS FROM GOVERNMENT BODIES. AND THAT HOTLINE HAS BEEN RINGING OFF THE HOOK SINCE THE BEGINNING OF THE YEAR. Um, THEY'RE CITING MANY OF of THESE DIFFERENT CITIES AND AGENCIES, um, CABINET DEPARTMENTS ARE CITING staffing shortages. We know that there's um, an employment crisis in the country and, and government is, is uh, seeing that as well. And so many of them are saying, hey, we don't have the staff to pull together these records that citizens are requesting. And quite frankly, that's just not an excuse that we can accept. Um, we, it's, it's an essential function of government under the law. It's like keeping the lights on and keeping the water flowing. Exactly. And, you know, even within the state attorney general's office, which is charged with compliance, um, they're having staffing shortages. So when citizens submit a complaint to the AG's office, oftentimes there's really considerable delays in that process as well. So there's really no recourse for citizens right now other than filing lawsuits.
5: And that's expensive, though. You're working on a solution to that, aren't you?
6: we are so you know even newsrooms have trouble sometimes filing these types of lawsuits because of shrinking budgets and they might not have an attorney available certainly the public might not be able to hire an attorney just to get a government record so fog has launched a campaign last year to hire what we're dubbing our state sunshine attorney and this attorney would be available for citizens journalists business folks um, when they're having problems getting records. Uh, we have raised to date in cash and pledges $295,000, um, which would uh, really go a long way to our $300,000 goal. So we're in the home stretch, um, and our hope is that we'll be able to get someone hired on by the end of the year.
5: And that means if I am trying to you know, get some information from the city council about whether or not they're gonna put a roundabout near my house, um, and they they won't give it to me and they won't give it to me i can call you guys and say hey what can i do here and that staff attorney could help me
6: yeah and you know the, the kinds of things they might do to start with are send a letter to the city council hey we're going to put you on notice you need to to give the citizen the information um, or you know it could go so far as a lawsuit in, in
5: district court and those letters from lawyers actually really work because people get scared that they are really going to get sued and, and it does kind of give them a kick in the pants doesn't it
6: Absolutely, even when I, who am not a lawyer, uh, uh, send a letter on behalf of FOG, it really can get the attention of of these agencies.
5: All right, well, Sunshine Week is coming up and we will all be uh, looking for more transparency in government in New Mexico. Thank you so much, Shannon, for being with us. Absolutely, thank you so much for having me, Gwyneth.
0: All right, we're going to go in a different direction now. For those of you who love the Our Land coverage we provide here at New Mexico PBS with our correspondent, Laura Paskus, she is doing regular Facebook Lives on a variety of topics, and she recently did one following up on a story you may have read about from last summer where in El Malpais, a national monument, people were cutting down these... um, Juniper trees illegally and really causing some damage to the ecosystem there. And uh, so we wanted to get caught up on that as well as just talk about how what the variety of trees are in, in the national monuments, how important they are, what value they provide, as well as some, some studies around trees and other wildlife and plant life there at the national monuments. Uh, really fascinating conversation here. And it's a reminder. If you don't already follow Our Land on Instagram or YouTube uh, or Facebook, please do that. Just search for Our Land New Mexico. That way you'll know about these Facebook Lives when they happen. But we love that we're able to bring you these conversations here as well. And if you've got ideas for other environmental-related Facebook Lives, we'd love to hear that. Just drop us a line on any of those channels. But here now, Our Land correspondent Laura Pasquez.
7: Good morning, Eric Weaver. How's life in western New Mexico this morning?
8: Oh, it's good. It's still a little bit cold out this way. So.
7: Awesome. So thanks, everybody, for joining us. I've got Eric Weaver, um, and he is joining us from um, El Malpais National Monument, and I believe you also work for El Moro. Is that right? That's correct. Okay. So we're going to start. Last year, there were some news reports about alligator junipers being cut from within the the monument boundaries. Can you talk a little bit about, um, you know, why you think that was happening and kind of what's happened since those news reports last year?
8: So uh, news reports came out um, about a year ago. However, the cutting of the alligator junipers actually started occurring about two years ago. And we've actually seen a sizable number of uh, uh, alligator juniper lost because of that. Um, What we expect that people are using that for is for lumber. Uh, uh, Alligator juniper can um, get a pretty good price for um, different kind of furniture and things of that sort. So um, the way that the trees are getting cut are kind of um, not very, thoughtful in the process they um and they pretty much they leave the the trees as, a, as pretty well scarred where they are not going to actually be able to recover at all so
7: so aside from the fact that um you know it's a protected area that people aren't supposed to be cutting in why is it significant that these trees are being cut do you think
8: uh, well, we do not have very many alligator juniper trees in our park. Um, it's not very common. Um, the, um, so that's one of the concerns is that a lot of, um, a lot of the, a lot of our park, the, everything is very connected with the ecosystem. So when you, uh, when you start to have a depletion of one type of tree, there's other consequences that may happen with that because the ve- different vegetation Kind of will kind of rely upon that connectiveness, and when you lo- uh, lo- wipe out an entire area, then you um, may also have further consequences in, with that.
7: So I'm a big fan of alligator junipers. I love like when hiking in different places, when you spot one, it always feels kind of like a, a light treat because they're kind of special, um, a little less common than the one seeded junipers. But you have lots of other really cool and interesting and important trees in the national monuments. Can you talk about those? And maybe we'll start with a particular Douglas fir that you told me about.
8: Yeah, um, the Douglas fir that I was talking to you about is uh, was named Yoda tree because of its appearance Um, and it's about, it it died in 2014, it um, I believe was about a 600 year old Douglas fir and um, some of the things that came out of that though is that there's other trees that are in that vicinity that um, were cored for dendrochronological records. And, um, they were actually able to get a 2000 year dental chronological record, um, to kind of better help us understand, um, our climatic conditions. And in particular, uh, the researchers were studying fire regimes, which is, uh, is fairly e- interesting for our park because our fire regimes, because of our geology, our, um, our lava fields, um, kind of, Inhibit uh, a, a large fires in general. Uh, so we may not actually, it a lot of the trees in the park will not see fire for hundreds of years. And normally when we do see a fire, it's kind of, uh, a lot of times it's just one lightning strike it, it, it caused by like one lightning strike.
7: So we've done a number of shows um, that kind of tie into um, tree ring data when it comes to things like fire regimes and drought. And I'm curious, um, there are there other trees in the park that people are coring and studying? Um,
8: so we, we've had, um, a large number of studies that uh, there's ongoing studies of the trees in the park. Douglas firs tend to be the ones that people look at the most. Um, but, we ha- we have a lot of trees that are very old in the park. Uh, our rocky mountain juniper are also um, they're four to six hundred years old in a, in a lot of cases as well as our ponderosa can get up to six hundred years um, and uh, um, uh, some of our actually some of our pinions can also get to four to six hundred years so that is another concern that we have with this cutting is that we're going to to have more, if people start to cut down some of these older trees, uh, that there's, it it would be a very unfortunate. And
0: one of the things
8: that is surprising is that some of the records that we're actually get are from trees that are dead and down. And so a lot of people would not actually consider it, it that big of a deal just to pick it up and use it for a fire, a campfire or something like that. But it may actually be a very critical record that they're actually destroying in the process.
7: And so. so I think when we spoke last week, you mentioned some other things like I believe it was pygmy, ponderosas, and then aspens. So there's some unique um, little pockets of ecosystems there. Is that right?
8: Yeah, uh, that, that's uh El Malpais is very interesting in that it's um, composed of eight different lava flows that occurred um, um, from three thousand years ago all the way up to um, ten thousand to hundred thousand, and with if you actually include like the conservation area next to, to El Malpais, um, and each each of those lava flows kind of creates different characteristics to the vegetation. Um, and so um, the McCarty's flow and uh, as well as the Bandera lava fl- uh, flow um, both have a pygmy um, Douglas firs and uh, uh, ponderosa. Um, and those, uh, uh, um, th- those are um, just kind of just able to grow utilizing uh, um, water sources that are in the cracks of the lava flows. Um, where, where it's kind of stored there, and um, so it's kind of a, it's a very fine balance for them to actually be able to survive, and that's why they have the pygmy nature with that, um, but we also have the aspen that, um, uh, that uh, grow in the park, and, it, and it's at a fairly low elevation, um, we're looking at 7,000 foot elevation, uh, and uh, in that case it's where the um, aspen um, are kind of utilizing the water flow off of the uh, off of the lava fields and um, yeah it, but they're very beautiful to see they um, it, because of the contrast uh, between the aspen trees and the lava, the blackness of the lava kind of I've always found as uh, a very aesthetic, uh, very beautiful and in, in looking at those.
7: So I was out there a few weeks ago and, you know, just kind of marvel over the fact that these trees are growing on these lava fields. And you can see these big kind of tap roots stretching across the rocks. Um, obviously, these, you know, so many of them survived hundreds of years. In, and during a time, I would imagine, when people needed that wood, um, you know, for building, for for burning, when that was the only fuel source and a really important um you know a really important resource to people and yet they were preserved um for hundreds of years and you know kind of i'm curious what you think about what it says about our our society that we um maybe don't think twice about cutting some of these ancient trees that are so important
8: uh, um, yeah, with, uh, Elmo Pais, it was heavily logged, um, all the way up to about World War II, and I, I think that's kind of what stopped the logging, uh, um, from, from actually taking over a lot more of our t- trees. Uh, there's a, a lot of the trees that we have out there were kind of protected because of the difficulty of access to that. Um, now we're, uh, now since, uh, Elma Pais is a park as well as uh, a, a recommended wilderness area. Um, there's a lot of protection that's put into place to, to protect the trees from uh, from cutting, um, and so hopefully we'll start to see a lot of that start to grow back over time. Uh, the, obviously, we still have to uh, the concern over the fact that we continue uh, remain in a continuous drought and. Uh, um, it's going to be a very rough life for uh, for the trees, and um, so and that just goes back to being concerned about the illegal cutting. Is that those trees getting those trees back uh, may not be possible.
7: So. So speaking of drought, one of the other big resources that the that the monuments have are lava tubes and caves. Um, in our newsletter a few months ago, when it came out, we wrote about this really neat study um, um, from some cave ice that was harvested. Can you talk a little bit about that study? And we'll put a link to it in the comments as well.
8: Yes. uh, um, uh, We have um, several hundred lava tubes in in the park. Um, And uh, there's about 100 of those uh, lava tubes uh, have some uh, perennial ice. We actually have the most southerly um, perennial ice in North America. So, um, and, uh, how that, how that occurs is that, um, the lava, um, acts as like an insulation. And so it kind of keeps, uh, it keeps the cold air in the cave. Um, we refer to that as like cold air trap and because it also is the morphology, the, uh, shape of the cave kind of keeps the kind of helps that to recirculate in there. And then we have the moisture that, um, that kind of, kind of seeps through the um, lava. And, and that's how the ice actually kind of stays there. And you'll have, so most of our caves are temperatures are kind of in a 30 to 40 degree temperature throughout the year. And, uh, and, and so that was a lot of people through history, uh, for millennia, um, have, um, utilized the cave ice, uh, and that would be, uh, so within pre-contact, they would have been using, uh, people would have been using it for, um, uh, for, uh, collecting water, uh, because, we, uh, the, because of other droughts in the past, um, they would, would have needed to utilize that as a resource as well as, uh, possibly for refrigeration, for keeping uh, holding food. Uh, we also see that kind of in historic times where people continue to do those same type of activities. Um, and uh, one of the things that with cave ice is that it's, uh, it's a way that we can actually, just the way that we act, it's in the same way that we can actually get information from tree cores or speleothems uh, we can also get that information from cave ice, and uh, um, that, uh, and so, um, so we recently did, did some cores in the cave that uh, resulted in a publication and some additional ongoing research. That, and some of the exciting parts to it is that it, it reached back in time um, almost. Uh, I, I'm sorry i'm trying to th- i think it reached back about two thousand years ago as well um and um it, it gave us more information about our past climate history uh so that we it could kind of match uh match different events uh, that were occurring when when we had different droughts and so uh in conjunction with that there was charcoal that we also were able to utilize uh, to kind of understand times when people were using the cave ice. And so uh, there is a substantial connection between when people were using the cave ice and uh, when there was drought periods. And uh, so that kind of gives us more uh, information about our history. Um, The one thing we are hoping to get that we have not been able to get is kind of more information about the great drought uh, that happened in the Southwest thousands of years ago.
7: And there's some other interesting scientific studies that have gone on recently or ongoing. Can you talk about a few of those?
8: Um, so there's um, one of the things that we're doing right now is um, we've had issues regarding um, uh p pseudomigen- ah, destructans, um, uh, uh, which is the fungus that causes uh, white-nose syndrome. And so we have been doing studies um, to uh, kind of monitor the bats as well as um, uh, uh, one of the researchers that we're working with, uh, Diana Northa uh, from uh University of New Mexico, um, she's a microbiologist and has been taking a look um, at um, some of the microbes that are in the cave. And sometimes these microbes are also on the bats themselves. And um trying to identify if there's any type of natural defense that they can actually develop uh, uh, um, uh, some find out whether these microbes may have like a natural defense against the fungus and um in addition to that it is uh, she's also doing studies uh with um, actinobacteria uh to see uh, it kind of gives us a better understanding of what life is like what the potential for life on other planets and what that would actually look like.
7: Well, Eric Weaver, thanks so much for joining me to talk about all the cool things happening at the park above ground and below ground. It's such a, uh, both monuments are so cool and I love visiting both of them. They're beautiful.
8: Okay. Yeah. Stop by anytime.
7: (laughs) Thanks, Eric.
0: That's all the time we have for this episode, but we're already hard at work on the comings and goings of the week, and we'll have a lot more for you coming up this Friday here on the New Mexico In Focus podcast. We thank you as always for listening, and until next time, stay safe and stay healthy.